Last week, I started you off with an intriguing scenario, followed up with some pointed questions. I think it may have caught a few of you off guard, so I want to do that again, uh, since this is kind of a follow-up to last week's message. This time, just to start, I want you to picture a solid Christian teenager. Guy, girl, doesn't matter. We'll go with a guy just for the sake of it. And this young man, he's great. Comes from a wonderful, loving family in the church. They're faithful attenders there every Sunday. He attends a service. He listens attentively. And then he goes to a high school group afterwards. He's an active member. Whenever he's needed, he's happy to help out at church. He likes to serve. He wants to be of help. And he likes being there. He's a good kid. And thankfully, he hangs out with a good crowd. Most of his friends are just Christians from church. And when he's at school, he doesn't mix up with the wrong people. He and his friends try and live differently even from the rest. They don't, they don't go to parties. They don't drink. They don't swear. They don't watch bad movies. They don't get involved with girls. They don't even listen to worldly music. All through his high school years, he appears to be a solid Christian. He knows the truth. He knows what the Bible says. He'll tell you. He'll even go on a, a short-term missions trip. You expect great things from him. You think maybe even one day he'll become a pastor. He seems like a great Christian youth. And then this young man goes off to college. He goes out of state, away from his fam- friends and family. And that's when everything changes. First, he stops going to church. He visited church a little bit when he first got there, here and there, but after a while, he just stops going altogether. No more Bible studies, no more small groups. In fact, he stops picking up the Bible altogether. He did make a few friends, though, but none of them were very active Christians. In fact, most of them were the more worldly type, and together they got involved in the wrong scene. They started drinking and partying and getting involved with girls. After a while, he just stopped identifying himself as a Christian. After a little bit more time, he stopped even really believing in God altogether. And eventually, he even turned against his upbringing, and he wanted nothing to do with church ever again. He became hostile to all things Christian. So that's our little scenario for this week. And the question, just like last time, is how can this be? How can something like this happen? How can you have someone who seems so on the right track, just totally 180 and turn against the faith, even become hostile to the faith in just a short time? How how can this happen? What's going on? Do you have any explanation for this? Do you have any way to process something like this, to explain it? And I'll say again that you really had better. You had better be able to make sense of something like this. You have to understand the cause of this problem, especially since we're not talking with the hypothetical. We all know stuff like this happens all the time. And it's not just with high school teenagers. All throughout life, people at various times are drawn away from the faith. They go the way of the world. They turn their backs on their childhood faith. Why? How and why does this happen? Do you know? You you need to. And you can bet again that today we're going to find out. We're going to uncover the root of this issue and so much more because it's it's really a lot broader than this one little scenario. And once again, we're going to find out from the mouth of Jesus himself. So take your Bibles and open them up once again to Mark chapter 7. Open to Mark chapter 7. If you need one, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, Mark chapter 7. 
And as you're turning there, I want to bring you back up to speed because this really is like a part two to last week's message. Because here in Mark 7, we find Jesus still teaching the crowd like before. He's up in Galilee. He's teaching. And as he was teaching, this delegation of scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem, they come up to him. They surround him. They've got some questions for him. But it's not like they were disciples. These, these Pharisees, they, they hated Jesus. They hated him. He exposed their hypocrisy. He opposed their power and authority. So they, they just wanted to take him down. They're looking for some excuse, some charges to bring up against Jesus to discredit him in the eyes of the people. And so they approach, they're on a mission. Their mission is to catch Jesus in some violation of Jewish law so they could discredit him. They're, they're like shark lawyers. They're expert lawyers in the Jewish law. They just need one little violation to catch him in. And that's what they find. As we learn at the beginning of Mark 7, they witness Christ's disciples eat bread without washing their hands. So they're busted. Now, it's not a hygiene issue. We're not talking about like the bacteria. This was a ceremonial defilement issue. And according to Jewish law, you had to ceremonially wash your hands. You had to purify them before you ate a meal. But Christ's disciples, they disregarded that. They didn't do it. And so what does that mean for Jesus? It means their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus, is like he's a lawless teacher. What, does he not care about Jewish law? What kind of a teacher is this? So they approach Jesus with a question. It's really not so much a question as, as a sly attack. Look again, just for recap, at verse 5 of Mark 7. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands. And notice their complaint. They're not complaining that the disciples are violating God's Old Testament law, but rather the tradition of the elders. Why aren't you keeping tradition? We spent a lot of time covering this last week, but again, by way of recap, God originally gave his law to the Jews through Moses. That's why it's sometimes called the law of Moses. And you can think of like the Ten Commandments, but really you can call it the whole Old Testament. But over the ages, for various reasons, the Jews, they started to add to God's God's law. They started to make up their own rules, their own regulations, their own traditions. They started piling it on. Pretty soon, they developed this huge religious system that went way above and beyond what God actually prescribed for them. There's this huge religious tradition And by Christ's day, the Jews, they were more concerned with keeping this new tradition than actually adhering to God's real word. And again, we can see that's their concern in verse 5. They're not bothered that Christ and his disciples violated the Mosaic law, but rather this tradition of the elders. What, does Jesus not care about the tradition of the elders? And the answer to that question is no. Jesus doesn't care about the tradition of the elders. He doesn't care at all. He doesn't even answer their question. In fact, he just jumps straight to rebuke, straight to a prophetic rebuke. Again, look at verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. 
And with this, Jesus exposes the legalism of the Pharisees. And it's such a deadly error. And the Jews were swimming in it. Legalism. We've talked about that as well. What is legalism? Well, as we learn, there's two sides to that coin. On the one side, legalism, it's where you create your own law. You make your own standard of righteousness and you even use it to overturn God's standard. The Jews, for instance, they were able to, using their laws and traditions, basically get around this huge command to honor your father and mother. Like he talks about a little bit later. Like Jesus said, they neglect God's actual commands in favor of their little man-made tradition. This is side one of legalism, and this was mostly our focus last week. We studied verses 1 through 13. Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees for their error, and he just totally invalidates their whole system. Their system, their traditions were totally bankrupt because both they didn't come from God and they were actually being used to overturn God's word. That, that's a terrible error. It's such a warped and wicked system. Jesus, he had to speak up against it. Because if you go that, if you follow that path and you adhere to that system, it's only leading you away from God, not closer to him. So he had to speak up. But there's another side to legalism. That's, that's the first side. There's another side to legalism that it deals mostly with, with holiness, with righteousness. And let me ask you this question. I want you to answer this in your mind. How do you make someone holy or righteous? Let's say maybe you've got a child or a spouse, a friend, a family member, and you just you want them to be holier. You want them to be more righteous in life. So what would you do? What do you do about that? How would you make them holier? If you answered that they need to follow the rules better, if you answered they need God's law, they need to follow the law, they need a stricter law, then you are a legalist. Holiness or righteousness doesn't come by keeping the law. But legalists think it does. Legalists believe that by being a good person, by keeping the law, by just being devout, God will accept you. They think, well, those who make it into heaven, those are the ones who are really serious about keeping God's commands. That's how you get in. You've got, you got to be serious about this. But that is so wrong. What's the problem with this? The problem is that you are not justified by keeping the law. Keeping the law can't save anyone. Rather, the law only condemns us. Just think about the Ten Commandments, for example. You all know them, basically. How many have you already violated? Half? More? Probably. And that's just ten. There are hundreds of commands. You may think, well, yeah, I haven't murdered, though. I haven't done that one. So at least I'm not that bad, right? If I stay away from the really bad stuff. But wrong. Because what is God's standard? What is his standard? Forget your man-made standard that makes you feel better. What is God's actual standard? What does God demand and require for you to go to heaven? He requires absolute perfection. Total obedience, no sin. And I hope you can see the problem with that. It's that you're not totally perfect. 
you and me both, we're not perfect. No one is without sin. We have violated these laws already. We have all these commands. You can try and keep them all you want, but you've already violated them and you will continue to do so. So you're, you're not going to pass that test. You don't, you don't make it. You don't make that standard. And you can try and add more laws. That, that's really not going to help you. That's just adding more laws to break. You're just going to add more violation because we're lawbreakers. And that's true. No one keeps God's commands perfectly. It's like we're born as lawbreakers. It's like we can't help it. It's like something inside us drives us to, to break these laws. And you know what? That's, that's true. That is true. There is an even deeper problem going on apart from just our, our violation of the law. There's something else going on here. We're all sinners. Okay, we know that. Yeah, we're all sinners. But, but how bad is it? Really, how bad is our human condition? Are we as humans just, you know, we're basically good. Yeah, we screw up here and there. We have little mistakes. But as long as you don't do the bad stuff like murder and, and all that, then you're, you're basically okay. Well, no, not the picture. Rather, Scripture paints and experience confirms that we as humans are rotten to the core. You're not good. According to Scripture, there's no such thing as a good person. There are no good people. Instead, at the very core of our beings, in our hearts, we're, we're wicked. That's why we do and say the things we do. Like Romans 3 says, how many righteous are there? Oh yeah, none. There are none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good, not even one. You maybe think, well, why? Well, I, I do some nice things. I help that lady cross the street. But with your heart as wicked as it is, nothing comes out good. Everything is warped. And what is the source of our unrighteousness? Like I said, it, it's ourselves. Our own hearts are to blame. Our, our wickedness springs from within. After the fall, we are all born with sick, wicked, depraved, sinful hearts. And these hearts express themselves in various ways, lead us to disobey God. That's the real problem. Your, your real deeper problem is not just, oh, I did this, I did that. The question is, why did you do this or that? Why did you sin? It's because you wanted to. It's because your heart wants to. You have a heart condition. Legalists, like the scribes and the Pharisees, think their problem is only skin deep. You know, you just need to do good things on the outside. Just do the right thing and you'll be okay. But if they only knew how bad their insides were, they wouldn't even try to be good through keeping the law because you're not even going to get close. You have an internal problem that goes way beyond this law and you're just not going to get there. By keeping the law, you're not going to be a good person. It's not possible. And you're certainly not going to be perfect, which is what God requires. So that's our problem. The heart of man is desperately sick. Do you, do you get that problem? And what's the solution? Well, we're going to find out. And you don't have to take my word for any of this. I hope you don't, because we're going to see it again come out at us from Scripture. We're going to hear again from Jesus himself, this time in verses 14 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. This is really the second half of his teaching time. It's all one teaching time, but we split it up into two halves. But this passage in Mark 7, verses 1 through 23, it's one of the longest 
discourses by Jesus that Mark records in his gospel, which just goes to tell you how important this is. Mark just had to include this. Mark, it's the action gospel. He includes very little dialogue of Jesus, but he had to include this really long teaching time because it's just so important. And we're thankful because what we find in these verses is still so relevant to the church today. And this this really may be some of the most pertinent and relevant teaching to church life today in all of Scripture. The same two-headed error of legalism is all around us, and if you're not careful, you can fall into it. If you don't get this straight, you run the risk of falling into the trap of legalism yourself. You have to know, according to Scripture, what man's real problem is. You have to know that. And then you have to know the real solution. And then it's not even just about knowing it, then you have to appropriate it. That's what we're going to learn again today. It's a lot to see. Without further ado, we're going to jump into Mark 7 again, starting at verse 14. Just go through these remaining few verses, verse by verse, see what Jesus has to say and what can we learn from him. So let's start again, this time at verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. It's right off the bat from this verse, we can actually piece together a little bit more of what was going on that afternoon. We know that Jesus was at first teaching the crowds once again. The common people, they gathered around him, they were hearing him speak. But like we learned back in verse 1, this delegation of scribes and Pharisees show up, and the common people, they were called the people of the land, they were scared of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're intimidated. If you pass them on the road, common people, they would just kind of move aside, let them pass. And so we know for sure that when these scribes and Pharisees showed up, they surround Jesus. The common people, they just back away. The people slowly retreat, give them some time for Jesus and the Pharisees to have their little powwow. But now Jesus wants them back. He's calling the crowd back to him. He wants them to hear what he has to say. He just delivered a rebuke Just for the Pharisees, just for you guys, he rebuked them. But now he wants the people to come back. Everyone needs to hear what he's going to say. He has a statement to issue, and it's for everyone. He says, listen to me, all of you, emphatic, just gather around and hear me, understand. Verse 15, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. By saying this, Jesus is not so subtly repudiating the Pharisees. Because remember, they approached him earlier because his disciples were doing what? They were supposedly defiling themselves. How? By eating bread with unwashed hands. That's, that's just so unholy. That's so impure, they thought. How can God accept them if they are so unclean and defiled? That's what they were thinking. Now, in a way, the scribes and the Pharisees had one thing right. They understood that God doesn't like defilement. That God can't accept people who are unclean and defiled. Like, like God says in his law, Leviticus 19.2, you are to be holy just as your Heavenly Father is holy. God wants and demands 
holiness. So the fact that they're trying to avoid defilement in general, okay, that's good. We shouldn't want to be defiled. That's what God wants. Okay, that's fine. But but where does this defilement come from? And that's really the key word used five times in these few verses here through 23. Where does it come from, this, this defilement? The Jews believed defilement was external. They believe you start off clean. You got a clean slate. You start off good. You're white. You're clean. But you become defiled by touching things, by bumping into things, by coming into contact with other things that are defiled. So it becomes a game of not trying to touch things. If you eat the wrong thing, you become defiled. If you touch the wrong thing, you become defiled. If you do the wrong thing, you become defiled. There's a big problem, though, with that whole view of defilement that Jesus teaches. The problem is that defilement is not an external issue. It's an internal issue. It's not what goes into a person that defiles them. But it's what comes out. Which means you have the source of defilement in you. You produce your own defilement. And that's bad news if God rejects defilement. That means you can try and not touch things all you want. You have a, you have a different problem here. Just imagine a person, maybe you know someone like this, they're totally obsessive-compulsive over dirt. They don't want any dirt tracking into their house. Zero. None. You come to their house, they make you take off your shoes right away. Just don't even bother. Delivery man is like, you know, you're not coming in. Stay at the door. They basically hose their kids off before they even come inside. They're just so obsessive compulsive. No dirt tracking in. They want to keep their house clean. But what if you found out that this person had four birds, three dogs, two cats, and a pet pig living inside their house? And that these animals were not potty trained. They did their business whenever and wherever they pleased. Now first, you'd probably think, your friend's a little crazy, and you might reevaluate your friendship. But then you would also think their concern with stopping dirt from coming in from the outside is a little misplaced. Maybe they should first worry about that never-ending source of filth from the inside. Because even if they stop all the dirt from coming in from the outside, they're still living in a literal pigsty. The dirt is just generating itself inside. And that's how these Jews lived. They so desperately tried to keep from getting defiled. We can't, we can't eat that. We can't touch that. We can't do this. We've we got to stay clean on the outside. They're so desperate to try and do that. They just had to stay clean, and just in case, they washed all the time. That's why that's where all these washing rules came from. Just, well, in case you got defiled, you got to wash the outside, and then you'll be good again. Lots of washing. But this concern is rather misplaced, because these external matters, they're not even causing true defilement first. And really, rather, they should be more worried about what's going on inside of them. Because it's a pigsty of defilement in there. They're really filthy internally. And it's just it's spewing out. They don't even realize it. And what they do on the outside, it, it doesn't matter. They could, they could never touch a Gentile their whole life. They could never eat any pork. They could just do everything perfectly. But they would still be completely defiled. 
Because it's just coming from within. Now, it's, it's fairly clear at the beginning of verse 15. Specifically, Jesus is talking about food. He's talking about food. He says there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. And that's talking about food, what you eat. And Matthew, in his gospel, he makes that explicit. Jesus was talking about food. It's not really the food you eat that makes you defiled. He says, instead, it's that which proceeds out of you that makes you defiled. But that second part, he doesn't really define what he's talking about, that which comes out of you. Is he still talking about food? And if so, is, does he mean like, like vomiting? That's, what, that's what's really defiling? And I bet you there were some people who were that dull that they really thought he meant you know, vomiting. And they're probably thinking to themselves, okay, I guess Jesus is saying we just have to stay away from, from vomiting. That's, that's the real deal. We just have to avoid that now. But no, that is not what Jesus is talking about. He goes on to explain himself because even his disciples, they're not really putting it together. So look at verse 17. He gives that little one-liner, then he goes off, and later, verse 17, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. Now stop right there. What's striking is that he, he didn't give a parable. That, that wasn't really a parable in the strict sense of the word. It was actually a rather plain statement. But they weren't getting it. And so to them, it was like, it was like a riddle. It was like a parable. And so they need an explanation. You have to keep, keep in mind, what Jesus says here, it sounds familiar to us, but back then this was totally revolutionary. Focusing on the externals had become so widespread in the Jewish system that everyone, including the disciples, they took it for granted. Of course that's what God wants. The outside, that's what matters. How do you, how do you make someone holy? Remember that question? Of course, you, just, you do the outside stuff. You stay away from defilement. Of course. Everyone had been influenced by the skin-deep religion of the Pharisees, even the disciples. So they, they don't get it at first. So let's hear Jesus. He's going to explain himself even more, what he meant by that. Let's see that now, verse 18. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared, all foods clean. Now stop there for a moment. You, you see, he's saying food's not your problem. Food is not your problem. And now we know why. He's making it clear for the disciples to understand. Food doesn't really defile you because it doesn't get into your heart. It doesn't make it into your heart. The digestive system isn't connected to the circulatory system. And the food you eat, it's not making it into your heart. It passes through you, it's eliminated. Now you might be thinking, well, what about that you know, cheeseburger, that steak? I'm pretty sure that cholesterol is making it into my heart. And that is actually true. But that's still not quite the point that Jesus is making. Because when he's talking about the heart, he's not talking about the actual organ of your body. He's talking about the center of your being. 
the core of just who you are. It's talking about your spirit, your inner man. That's your heart. That's what almost every culture associates with the heart. We use the heart to represent who we really are as a person on the inside. And he's saying the food you eat doesn't affect that. doesn't change that. doesn't even come into the picture. Food and all things external can't really defile you as a person. Defilement doesn't come from the outside. So, where does it come from? Well, let's finish reading verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. And what does he mean? Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. As he finishes his talk, he reveals several critical truths here. And he can't miss it. First, defilement is real. It's a real thing. We as humans, we really do have a sin and holiness problem. We are unclean before the Lord. We are defiled. So that's true. But secondly, what does true defilement look like? What is the nature of true defilement before the Lord? Do you think God really cares if we eat our food with unwashed hands? Do you think washing pots and pans is what really defiles us or keeps us clean before God? No. Even though that's what the Jews made it all about. That's what it was all about. Rather, he says, true defilement before the Lord looks like these Verse 23, evil things, evil things, evil thoughts and deeds. And he gives a sampling of such sins. And it's important to note, he's not just concerned with actions. He includes attitudes. He includes even thoughts. Did you know that just devising an evil thought, a wicked thought in your mind, is a defiling sin before the Lord? Even your thoughts are sin. That's a problem. Now, we could go through this list. We could study these sins one by one. That's not really the point. This is just a sampling of sin. It's meant to show us what true defilement looks like. And he's really trying to tell us where it comes from. Where do these evil deeds and thoughts and attitudes come from? We already know about them. We know what these things are. Where do they come from? It's not the devil. He doesn't say the devil made you do it, did he? It's not... The world, your upbringing, your circumstances cannot be blamed for your sin. They don't make you sin. What is the source of these defiling sins? Just one answer. He says you. You are yourself. Your own heart is the source of all these. It's like you have a factory of sin inside of you and it's just constantly churning out more and more defilement. And it never ends. The Jews, they got this all wrong. They understood that one little thing, that defilement's a problem. Okay, defilement is bad. 
God doesn't like that. Okay, they got that a little bit, but they got the nature of defilement wrong. They thought it was all ceremonial. They got the source of defilement wrong. They thought it was all external. And therefore, they got the solution to defilement wrong. They thought they just needed to keep away from bad things. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. Just stay away. Wash yourself. And you're good to go. But I hope, I hope now you, you see it. You get it. You get the problem with that. If your heart is a never-ending fountain of sin, then you're already defiled. Bad. You're already really defiled. This is Jesus' teaching on total depravity. You are not inherently good. You're not even born good. After the fall, we're all born with this type of heart. You don't have to program this. It's just, it's just there. We already have a sin-cursed heart. Our nature has been f- cursed, fallen. We sin because it's in our nature. We want to sin. We love to sin because we are enslaved to it. Our evil thoughts, our evil deeds are merely manifestations of our fallen, rebellious, sinful nature or heart. That's the real problem. And it's so much severer than the Jews thought because that's not something you can take care of with a little soap and water. You can't just, you can't just wash that away. What are you going to do? If the real problem is our own hearts, our inner person, what do you do? How do you cleanse that? Can you change your nature? It's like Jeremiah 13.23 says, can a leopard change his spots? No, you can't change that. Just as you who are accustomed to evil cannot do good, God says. We're, we're, we're depraved. This is a, a serious problem. So what is the solution? What, what is the answer? What can we do? If you're tracking with me, and I hope you are, what, do you, what can you do about that? Well, I want to give you the answer. And I want to give it to you from the Old Testament. Because these Jews, they should have known better. It's not like what Jesus was saying was new. God has always been concerned with the heart. The Jews just lost sight of this. So let let me just start off, tell you a little bit about the Old Testament law. You might be a little confused. This question, does God care about the internal or the external? What does he really care about? On the one hand, we have Jesus, and it, it seems like he's saying that God really cares about the internal. Okay, but but then when you read the Old Testament, it kind of seems like God cares about the external because there are all these laws about external things. So what gives? What What is the deal? Well, it's true. God gave the Jews tons of laws dealing with external defilement. In the Old Testament, don't eat pork, don't work on the Sabbath, don't marry a Gentile, and more. But you have to understand the intent and the purpose of God's law. Why did he give these commands? Is it because he only cares about the external? No, it's not. Take the book of Deuteronomy, for example. It's really one of, if not the most significant book when it comes to God's law. And yet in that book, 
What one word is repeated over and over and over again? Heart. This is a book of law, but God still tells him over and over again, what does he really want? He wants their heart. He wants heart worship. He's concerned about their heart. He wants them to know him and seek him and obey him from the heart. He even tells them in Deuteronomy to circumcise their hearts, which is to get rid of all sin at a heart level. And then he gives them in Deuteronomy the greatest command. And what is that greatest command? Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's the greatest command. So don't think at all that God only cares about the external, or even that he primarily cares about the external. No, he cares about your heart. He cares about the internal. But we still have the question, okay, then why all of these external commands? And there's a lot of them. So if that's true, why all these laws? Well, the law had two main functions. One was to teach. God gave the Jews all these external laws to teach them about holiness. He wanted them to live so differently than the surrounding pagan nations that they would really know what holiness means. And think about, you know, the restriction to not eat pork. There's nothing inherently immoral about eating pork. God created pigs. They were part of the creation. They were good. But God restricted it from them so that they would have a living picture of holiness. The law, it's full of pictures and symbols and types, and they all point to greater spiritual realities. But at the same time, when you look at the standard, okay, you look at the law, the standard that it gives. It's unattainable. You can't do that. The people, they can't live like this. There's no way they can measure up to this standard. They can't be holy like God wants them to be holy. They, they can't live this out. They violate the law. They're just as unholy as the Gentiles. And why is that? It's like something inside them is driving them to violate the law. They, they just can't be perfect. They can't be holy. And that brings up the second function of the law. It teaches, but it also convicts. It convicts. God gave them all these external commands to show them that, you know what? You can't be holy like I am holy. Not like this. Why? Because of your hearts. You can't do this. That's the real problem. That is what needs fixing. They need their hearts to be made right before God. Otherwise, all of these external commands, they mean nothing. God doesn't care. But the Jews totally missed this. They missed the teaching and convicting functions of the law. And instead, they only focused on the externals. And even more so, they added thousands of more laws. All external, no attention paid to the heart. But if the heart is missing, God doesn't care about any of the things you do. Your externals mean nothing. It's like Isaiah chapter 1. God speaks to Israel, he rebukes them. Listen to what God says, verse 13. God says to Israel, he says, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. 
new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. He says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. It's like, well, wait a second. I thought God commanded the people to do these things, like to sacrifice, to observe Sabbath, to hold feasts. Why is God so angry? The people are just doing what he told them to do in his law. Well, yeah, they're doing it, but their hearts were detached. They were total hypocrites. Their lives were full of wickedness. And so that being the case, God doesn't care about all of your externals. It means nothing if your heart is not right. By way of contrast, though, think about King David. Because that was a man who got it right. Did David sin? Yeah, he sinned. He sinned in a big way. Murder, adultery. That's pretty defiling right there. That's, that's pretty bad stuff. Yet, God still favored David and accepted David. How can that be? That, that doesn't make sense. He, was, he, was like, he did the bad things. And God still accepted them. That, that doesn't make sense. Well, David, in repentance, he first acknowledged his sin before God. He knew that he had done evil. And he knew the only thing to blame was his own wicked heart. He knew he was rotten from the inside out. And he knew that no number of rituals or ceremonies or sacrifices could actually change that. Which is why he says in his repentance psalm, Psalm 51, he says this, verse 16, says, You, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering." That's what God commanded in his law to do when you sin, give a burnt offering. But David's like, God, you don't actually care about that if my heart is this wicked. That doesn't mean anything. What does God really want? He says in the next verse, he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God really wants to see. He wants to see you tear your heart before him, not your clothes. That's what God wants, a heart that seeks him. And that's who David was. His heart was broken over sin. He was humbled. But he was still guilty. He was still guilty, though. So what could be done? What are you going to do? Nothing. The only thing he could do was cry out for forgiveness and plead with God to make him clean by grace. And that's what this psalm is all about. It starts off, verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He knew the solution is not in himself. He needed God to cleanse him. And ultimately, he knew that God needed to give him a new heart. And that's why he says in verse 10, he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's the answer. A new heart is needed in all of us. We need a new nature. It's like Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is desperately sick 
we need a new one. And there's still a problem, though, because we can't get one. Can you make a new heart? Can you reform the old one? Can you buy one? There's nothing you can do. We need a new heart, but we can't get one. But God can give you one. God can cleanse our hearts. And that's exactly what he promised to do in the Old Testament. little something called the New Covenant, which comes in to replace the Old Covenant of the law. And what does God promise? Just listen, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the only way. And this, by the way, that verse, it's precisely what Jesus was talking about when he said in John 3 that you must be born of the water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That's the answer. New birth, regeneration, transformation, a new heart, a new nature. That's what you need. And that's what Jesus came to provide. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And he rose from the dead to give you that new life, that new heart, new birth. And in so doing, by the way, he happened to inaugurate that new covenant. So that promise is for you now. When Jesus came, you see, he was never, he was never overturning or opposing God's law in the Old Testament. Rather, he was fulfilling it. All of the shadows, the symbols, the pictures, they have their substance in Jesus. And he came revealing, this is what really matters to God. This is what all of these these laws were pointing to. And he is the answer. You need newness. And that's his currency. He deals with newness. You can't make your heart new, but he can. And if you place your faith in him, he will. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It starts off rough. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, such were some of you. We all, we all are like that. We all were like that. But he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Faith in Jesus that comes from a broken and humbled heart is the only path to new life. If you get on that path by faith in God's work, he will bring you new life 
And then you will manifest that new life in a real holiness, the kind that God actually cares about and pleases him. That's the only way. Now just to wrap this up and bring this full circle, I hope that you all can now make sense of our little opening scenario. You remember that Christian kid who goes off to college and then he abandons the faith. The question was, how can that happen? What explanation could you give for that? And hopefully you see it. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty easy. The answer is, the young man was never born again. Pretty easy. Throughout his childhood, he was really good at going through the motions, doing the rituals, just like the Jews, all the externals. It was all a ritual to him, and he fooled everyone because he did what Christians do. He did the stuff, the Christian law, the Christian rules. He looked like a Christian. But in his heart, he didn't know God. He didn't really love or cherish God. He was a hypocrite. He never came to terms with his own inner defilement. He never cried out to God for new life in Christ. So he had a wicked heart, and it was never changed. Now, through his childhood, his parents, by their rules and regulations, they kept him at bay. Like a straitjacket of rules. He wasn't doing wild and crazy things because of all these laws. He looked shiny on the outside. But his heart was never changed. All those rules like, hey, home by 10, no drinking, no partying. They kept him in check, but they never actually changed his heart. And so it's no wonder that when he went off to college, he left the faith. Because as he left home, the straitjacket of the law was gone. And he was finally free to be on the outside who he always was on the inside. And his heart desires, it just came out. Of course. His heart was never changed. He's free to do as he pleases. So why would he want anything to do with these restricting laws of Christianity? He abandons the faith, but in reality, he never had faith to begin with. This happens all the time. Happens all the time. I was a college pastor for many years. Every year you see it with the new batch. Every year. And so parents always ask, so what do you do? What's, what's the answer? Are you telling me that I shouldn't have any rules for my kids? I just let them do whatever they want? Is that the answer? No, that's not the answer. Lawlessness is not the answer to legalism. We're avoiding both sides of that pendulum. Lawlessness is not the solution to legalism. Even Jesus brought with him the law of Christ. We still have rules. There are rules for all of us. But the rules don't bring salvation. And the rules, they don't change your heart. And so the solution for all of us is to shepherd the heart. You have to shepherd the heart. And whether you're dealing with the teenager or the middle-aged friend or just yourself, that's the same answer. You have to shepherd the heart, minister to the heart, the inner person. Forget going through all the motions. If your heart isn't right, God doesn't care. Show up to church, read your Bible. It means nothing if your heart is not right. But do you understand your sin? Do you understand your condition, your heart problem? Do you get that? Do you understand that you're defiled and it's from within and you can't stop that? And it's bad before the Lord. Do you, do you really feel that? Do you have that broken and contrite spirit like David mentioned? And if you do, then do you understand there's only one hope? There's only one place to turn. 
You can't be reformed. You're, you're already guilty. There's no reformation. You have to be transformed. And there's only one person who can do that. You need a spiritual heart transplant. Jesus is the only doctor in town. He's your only hope for forgiveness, regeneration, new life. So you have to go to him to make you new. Only then will all the externals, which are still there, be pleasing to God when you're made new in Christ. So whether you're dealing with the teenager, the middle-aged person, yourself, whoever, you have to get the heart right. And that happens by crying out to God to change you. And he will. And then your prayer can be Psalm 139, 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be in me any hurtful way and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray together. Lord, we we pray that again, all of us, that you do search our hearts and try us. May we examine ourselves as well. What What is within? Search us. And reveal to us, Lord, our own, our own sin. It's there. We know it. And we are defiled. We can try as, as much as we want. Try as hard as we can to be good. Keep your law. But it, there is literally no hope there. Because we transgress time and time again. It's like there's something in us driving us to rebel. And, and indeed, we have, we have a broken heart. We have a heart disease. The heart is desperately wicked. And what can we do? But Lord, we pray as you, as you search our hearts and you reveal our sin to us that you mend them as well and that you do lead us in the everlasting way and that's in Christ. He came, he lived, he died, he rose to forgive us, to deal with all of our transgressions of the law, to wipe them all away and then to make us new that we would not be so adversarial to you in your law. Lord, we thank you for the new life we have in Christ. We know Even still, as Christians, even though we are born again, we still sin, but the debt has been paid, and now we we fight sin. It does not please our new nature any longer. We want to seek and serve you. And bless us in that. We long for glorification when the sin nature is gone altogether, but may we uh, treasure what we have in Christ, fight the good fight, run the race of faith, and please you in all respects. And that has to happen in the heart. May everyone here examine their hearts. May we leave trusting you in our hearts, enjoying you in our hearts, rejoicing in our hearts, and the God who gave us new ones. We thank you. We praise you. Amen.